Blog. Blog Talk Radio. It's the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering you to live well, live fully, and love deeply. And now, here's our host, Speedway Pierce. from around the world. So hi to all of my Zimbabwean listeners, my homies, I love you. Hi to you in the UK, New Zealand, and of course right here in the United States. Welcome to the Speedway Show, an idea exchange empowering us to live well, live fully, and love deeply by improving the quality of our personal, professional, and spiritual relationships. Visit the website at www.thespeedwayshow.com and join all the people who have posted their comments. You can also visit our Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash thespeedwayshow, to participate in more discussion and sound off. And you can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash, you guessed it, thespeedwayshow. Our topic for today is money. Saving yours, mine, and ours. My guest speaker today is author Colin T. Nelson. Colin is an assistant public defender in Hennepin County in Minneapolis. And uh, if you missed the first time Colin joined us, check out the episode entitled Journey into Islam which aired on July 10th, and uh, I've noticed that it has actually gotten some pretty positive reviews on the website. There, Colin shared with us what he learned about Islam in researching his book, Reprisal, which you can pick up through the link for that episode at thespeedwayshow.com, or you can get it from colinnelson.com, or you can get it from amazon.com. Colin has also been a financial advisor for over 30 years and counseled many individuals in the achievement of their dreams of financial independence. Colin has published several books, one of which is a non-fictional work called When Can I Tell My Boss I Quit? Well, wouldn't we all like the answer to that question? Just as before, you can pick up a copy of this book by accessing the link for this episode, thespeedwayshow.com, or at amazon.com. Colin, welcome to the Speedway Show. Well, hi, Speedway. It's wonderful to talk with you. One of the things that makes this uh, show so unique is that we um, focus on spirituality and we have a reliance on the life manual as a guidepost to living fully and increasing the success of our relationships. If you are wondering, listeners, what a life manual is, it is the manual that comes with your body, mind, and spirit. Like the Hebrew Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the Christian Bible, or some other holy writing that speaks to you. While expressed in different ways, the underlying truths about living right, living a godly life, tend to be the same. 
Colin, for those who didn't catch your first visit to the show, do you use a life manual? And if so, what is it? I do. I'm a Christian, and I uh, use the Bible primarily, although I have to say that um, there are certain aspects of Buddhism that I think fit with Christianity very well, and so I, I find myself taking some of their philosophy, for instance, the idea of not worrying about yesterday and not worrying about the future, but focusing on the present and what I can do you know, to help people and make make it a better world. Wow. I did not know that. Um, That was a tenet of Buddhism. But it (laughs) seems like it's a universally applicable concept, doesn't it? There's many things in um, Buddhist philosophy that fit very closely with Christianity. In fact, many of the things Jesus said are the same kinds of... um, precepts that uh, is found in Buddhist Buddhist philosophy. I'm not a Buddhist, I'm a Christian, but I do think there are, there are places where both philosophies uh, intersect. So that's another show. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one of these days, and, and for those listeners, one of the things that you may have noticed, you know, Colin, Colin launched the first of our spiritual exploration series with uh, Journey to Islam. And then um, we had Brent um, Routman, who is um, Jewish, who came and talked to us, and his episode was called Understanding Judaism. And uh, Brent happens to be Jewish, and so he talked to us about what that means and, and how worship in Judaism is different from Christianity, and it was really quite fascinating. So to my listeners, I would say, if you know any Buddhists, or if you are a Buddhist, you know, give us a call or send me a uh, message, and uh, let's see if we can get you on the show to talk to us about what Buddhism looks like. Right. right. So um, now, Colin, let's start on, uh, let's talk about financial independence and, in particular, um your 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 work as a financial advisor. You know, uh, public defender and financial advisor, it seems like an unusual combination. Did you come both did you become both at the same time or did one follow the other? The um financial advising followed the other, but for me it was always a uh, just a personal uh interest that I followed up on and found that uh I enjoyed it. Um, there is a similarity with being a lawyer in that the process is the same. If you're a lawyer or a financial advisor, you sit down with a client and you listen to them. You listen to what their problem is, what their facts are, um, what they have for assets, for instance, what kind of trouble they might be in. You counsel them as to what the law is. Now, that could be the criminal law. It could be uh, tax law. Um, and then you counsel them, making recommendations on how to either avoid problems or, get, or if they're you know in trouble as a criminal, then how to get out of it. So I found the process was very similar. Um, the financial advising I do because it's just so much more positive. Um, you know, unfortunately, criminal <laughs> law is can be very depressing at times. But the financial part, the financial advising is generally positive, and I try to make it a positive, exp- positive experience for people. 
So now, is that was there something in particular that made you decide to become a financial advisor, or uh, well, was as they say, I, I had my my well, partly both. I had my own interest and my own investments, and I thought, well, this would be a great way to to learn more about it for my own investments and uh, mm-hmm. in future retirement. But it also provides an opportunity to directly help people. And unfortunately, I think in this country, we have many, many knowledgeable people about all kinds of things except money. Uh, And it's amazing how naive people are about money and investments. So I I feel like um, it's a very positive, satisfying feeling when I I can help people understand those issues. That's, I think, what really motivates me deep down. Tell us what kind of licensing do you have to hold, or do you in particular hold in order to be a financial advisor? Well, there are a number of them. I hold an insurance license. These licenses, by the way, are all provided by each state. So if Mm -hmm. you want to do business in Wisconsin, for instance, you need to be licensed there as well as Minnesota. I work in Minnesota primarily. So I have uh, a, a number of insurance licenses, and then I have uh, three different securities licenses. One also uh, authorizes me to work as a um, as a financial advisor and charge people fees to give advice. You need okay. a special license for that. And if if you now I I personally don't trade stocks and bonds, but if you you were to do that kind of work. You need yet again another license for that. It's a very heavily regulated uh, business in the United States, as it should be, because you're working with other people's money, and it should be very. I, I fully support that kind of regulation and licensing to make sure uh, that the people that are working in the business know what they're doing and are are competent. Well, that's a very important point, and yeah. on that note. I am I'm wondering if you have any particular disclaimers you'd like to share with us before we have one to our is, topic. <laughs> that is required by uh, actually some of the government uh, uh, licensing groups, so let me just read it, just a sentence long. Uh, the registered representative of and securities offered through One America Securities Incorporated, member of FINRA and SIPC, a registered investment advisor, at 28200 Boulder Circle, Shorewood, Minnesota. Telephone number is 952-237-9185. That's all I need to say. Well, okay, very good. And in addition, listeners, let me also hasten to say that I am not a financial <laughs> advisor. So we will not be, and, and the, the purpose of this show is not to provide financial advice. That is beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today. But what we are going to do is we're going to be, uh, Colin is going to be sharing with us some ideas to uh, get you started as you're thinking about where you need to go and how you want to get there as you plot that path to financial independence Colin, to to get us going, give us a flavor of the kinds of issues you address in your book, When Can I Tell My Boss I Quit? (laughs) Well, I cover three things, Speedway. 
One, I try to set up a framework, um, a financial framework for people to make decisions. So, for instance, at the end of the book, I have a checklist that people can go over prior to making the decision, am I going to quit working? And we can talk more about the idea of retirement versus quitting, but um, in any event, I try to do that. I also offer them tools and advice. Uh, For instance, when should I take Social Security? At what age? So I give them tools to help them make the decision. And then the final third of the book is really me challenging them or encouraging them to make a change. Uh, You know, change is one of the hardest things human beings face, and we all hate to do it. Uh, Even if we don't like what we're doing as a job and we want to quit, Oftentimes we're we're hesitant to make the change. So I spend the last part of the book just encouraging people, if you've made good financial decisions, that will enable you to make other decisions in your life, such as whether you're going to quit working. And just for clarity, is quitting in the context of this book synonymous with retirement? I don't think so. I personally hate the word (laughs) retirement. Um, because it, to me, it, it 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 kind of implies that when a person retires, they stop doing things. I mean, they may continue hobbies or pleasurable things. They may golf. They may go travel or have lunch with friends. But um, what I talk in my in my book about is once you get your financial house in order and you make some good financial decisions, that frees you up to make changes. Now. You may call it retirement. Some some people, and I, I, I guess I should also add, there are many people that do want to retire, and they quit working for an employer, and they do stop working. If that's what you want, that's great, and I certainly don't mean to, uh, to criticize those people. Um, what I talk about in the book is just my own feeling, which is I think that all of us have certain talents and uh, abilities that, we should share with others. And even if we stop working for an employer, um, that doesn't mean, we, in my opinion, that we should stop working um, at other things that give value to the community. It may be volunteer, it may be paid, it may be hopefully fun, <laughs> but I, I look at quitting not necessarily as retiring. Um, well, that's a very interesting point because I used to... Um, work for a financial services company that Mm -hmm. at the time was the nation's largest seller of 401k plans by number of plans. Uh And one of the things that, you know, as you can imagine within a company like that, we focused on a lot was the question of what do you plan to do when you retire? And the concept really focused around, in a way, the idea that your retirement is really a transition to something else. Yes, that's as opposed a perfect to an end. Yeah. Yes. And so that, we those are better words and, than mine. <laughs> <laughs> and so you you know, we'd have this you know, we we'd celebrate retirement day and people would come in dressed the way they plan to dress when they are retired <laughs> and so you'd see these people coming in in their fishing gear and they come in in their travel <laughs> clothes. And it was always really kind of a hoot to see what people's retirement dreams were, but you're you're absolutely right that 
you know, for most of us, you know, the concept of retiring isn't I'm going to stop as much as it is I'm going to transition from doing this to doing that. Yes, yes. Particularly, I think most Americans, the vast majority of Americans, retire between 62 and 65. And again, uh, luckily in 2011, most Americans in that age group are in fairly good health and Mm -hmm. probably will live another 20, maybe even 30 years. So then the question becomes, what are you going to do for 30 years? Golf might get a little boring. Yeah, and how many places are you going to travel to before that right. gets a little boring, too? <laughs> right. Well, now we're going to play a clip, and it is a lawyer who is talking to a client, and she is receiving uh, a bit of bad news. Take a listen. <laughs> against any of the other women. They'll get their class, and you'll lose this case. Leslie. Oh, my dear. Well, it so happens that that is not the clip that I was hoping we were going to be listening to, and in fact, that is actually not a clip that is going to be relevant to our conversation today. So I am um, going to skip over that one, and we are going to transition instead to... um, The next part of our discussion, which is about the whole question of couples working with financial advisors. Now, one of the things that I found was true when I worked with, uh, when I worked on probate work, was that sometimes I would have uh, a, a man or a woman who would come in after a spouse had passed away. And they were, aside from being in shock because they just lost a spouse, the reality was that they really didn't know very much about their financial condition. And part of what we had to start doing was exploring the process of figuring out just where the assets were, how much they were, and sometimes, unfortunately, there was not a lot of money there mm-hmm. to uh, really support the surviving spouse who was left. And what I was wondering, Colin, is in the work that you do, is this a situation that you have encountered? It is. Unfortunately, Speedway, I'll tell you a true story. I had been working with uh, a man and his wife, mostly with with gentlemen. He uh, was a carpet layer and a wonderful, wonderful guy. He, he was so hardworking. He was moonlighting, doing that work at night. Anyway, I had talked to him about saving for retirement and encouraged him to do more of that. And then also uh, to have some, he didn't have, I don't think he had any life insurance or very little. Anyway, you know, unfortunately, he developed cancer and he died in his early 50s. So then the wife came to talk to me. There were some assets there, but very little. She had a part-time job that didn't pay much and Probably she was going to run through the assets within a year or two. Uh, it, it was very sad. She had about three or four kids, I think, quite young. It was a very sad situation because they had not taken the time earlier in their life to at least think about these issues and prepare for them. Wow, that's a shame. Yes. Have 
So now, uh, it, today, when you think about it, have have most of your clients been singles or couples? I, by far, couples. Um, I'd say ninety some percent are couples. Really. Mm-hmm. I think what happens, I think single people, um, well, I have had some single parents because they have children and that makes them more concerned about saving for mm-hmm. the future and insurance issues. But I think, um, I think unfortunately, a lot of single people, um, I don't know, maybe they don't, maybe they don't think about it as much as a couple does or particularly when you have children. That's kind of interesting. Now, most of us, speaking of couples, have heard claims that finances are one of the big issues that couples argue about. Have you found that to be true in the couples that you have worked with? Not so much the arguing speedway, but it's definitely, um, you know, I compare it kind of like being a minister or a priest. People will come into the office and talk to me about their their money issues and all of a sudden <laughs> I hear more than I probably anyone else has heard except for their minister <clears throat> priest um it, you know it I think because money touches everything in our lives uh, for better or for worse uh it 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 does it it's a it can be a flashpoint in a marriage and even in 20 in 2011 I find that the roles of men and women uh, are still pretty, pretty separate. In other words, I, not always. Generally, find that women handle the day-to-day uh, paying of bills, buying the groceries, running the house, uh, those kinds of things. The men deal more with the long-term investments, insurance programs, and so on. Not not all couples, but but typically the roles tend to kind of break down that way. Although it's interesting, whenever I'm talking to a couple and I make a recommendation, if the wife doesn't agree, it won't get done. (laughs) Well, imagine that. It is always, 99% of the time, it is the wife who makes the final decision and therefore provides the motivation to take action. That is actually pretty consistent with what we found uh, back when I was working at this financial services company. Really? Because, yes, because we did this uh, research. We commissioned some external research so that we could better target market. And in the segmentation process, what the, the, the advice that we got back from the researchers was that actually when you are selling financial products, from banking services to you know any any you know um, particularly things like retirement plans, you really need to be focused on the women because yeah. at the time the statistic was something like in sixty percent of the households it was the women who made the financial the yeah. ultimate financial decisions. Yeah, I'd say my experience has been even more than sixty percent. Yeah, the, the final so decision. Was, this was a good 10 years ago. Yeah. And I found it surprising because I really would have expected that, you know, maybe it was the men who did that. Yeah, particularly issues like retirement plans, insurance, uh, things like that. Yeah, that was surprising to me also. Go figure. But, Women have power. 
<laughs> right. In uh, advising couples, then, since most of your clients are couples, what kinds of problems or issues do they typically have around money? Um, well, I think you mean you mean in the way they relate to each other, or either in the way they relate to each other, or uh, in in the issues that you end up having to address before you can even get oh. to the question of what does a financial plan look like for your future? What does it look like? Um, I think it's communication. Um, oh, really? Again, I, I find people will talk, I, couples will come in and, we, you know, we always chat about something before we get get down to business. Um, mm-hmm. And the, pe- people, you know, husbands and wives learn how to communicate with each other. I find my experience has been pretty well. And then when we get to money, perhaps because it has the emotional baggage with it, I don't know, um, sometimes that communication breaks down. And again, I see it the, the division between some of the short-term pain of bills and running the house versus the longer-term decisions. Um, a lot of times people will come in and the par- each partner won't have any idea what's going on with the other partner. So, for instance, really? a wife may not have... She knows the husband has a 401K but doesn't know how much is in it, what he's investing in, and then he, in turn, may not know exactly what the housing expenses are or the food and clothing or the kids and you know sports and lessons. Yeah, and so it makes it very difficult for a couple like that to budget or to know where the money's going or to make intelligent choices about how much to save for the future. So I think it generally centers around communication, but a lot of that stems from, I don't know if fear is the right word, but people have a hesitancy to talk about money. Um, maybe because Even in a marriage? Oh, I think so. Now, at least, at least in front of me. Um, I'm assuming that that a lot of these people will go home and discuss what I've said to them. And Mm -hmm. by having a third person, me, involved, I think that kind of breaks the ice. Um, But I'm surprised that quite a few times people will come in and not be particularly knowledgeable about what the other person is doing with their money. They may have joint checking accounts and so on, or they may have separate, but um, they're not always communicating with each other. And so that is a big step for me to help them with, is just to lay out on paper, here's what we're talking about. Let's do a net worth statement, which is you list all the things you own that have value, and you subtract from that all the money you owe, such as a mortgage. And uh, let's see where we are. What's your financial health? That's a good starting point. And it gets people working together on the same goals. Well, do you typically find that they is it easy for couples to reach agreement on what their financial goals ought to be? Because you know what what's striking me is I would have expected that if you've got an appointment and you and your significant other are going in to talk about your financial plan, I find it somewhat surprising that they would walk in and not have done some some communication. So when they get to your place, then they're hearing some of the details of their financial situation for the first time, then, aren't they? 
they have general goals, Speedway, like like they'll come in and say, uh, yeah, we'd like to help our kids with college. Uh, okay. But when you dig down a little deeper, well, have you thought about a public or private school? Well, how much do you want to help them? What percentage? Do you have any idea what it's going to cost you or what you'll have to save today if you want to have this 20 years from now? Those mm-hmm. kinds of details, no. Very few people have really thought that through. Uh, or they'll generally say, well, we'd like to quit working when we're 63. But then when you ask them, how are you going to do that financially, of course, well, I'm saving in my company's 401K. Well, how mm-hmm. much are you saving and why are you saving that amount? Well, I don't know. Um, there's a 5% match, so that's what I save. Uh, <laughs> so the details of how they're going to get to the goal, and the goals are very fuzzy. Yeah, I want to send yeah. my kids to college, but then the details are, are quite often lacking. But that's that's why people come to, to advisors. Uh, statistics show that only 3% of Americans plan out their financial future. Um, the rest, I don't know what they're doing, but <laughs> but only 3% of Americans actually sit down either with themselves or with a professional and think it through with some kind of a plan or strategy. And isn't it true that, you know, when you talk about that 3%, that the things that we plan for are the things that are most likely to happen? So I would guess that for those 3% that actually do the planning, that they're much more likely to achieve their financial objectives compared to the other, you know, 97% who are really thinking about it. There was a study done at Yale University uh, several years ago, and they took a class from, not here, the details are fuzzy for me, but uh, I'll make my point here in just a second. They took the class of, I don't know, 1960 or something, graduating class. And they they uh, kept studying these people 10, 20, 30, 40 years after graduation to see how they had done in terms of achieving goals that they wanted in 1960. And that's exactly what they found. Of the people that had some kind of a plan, even if it was very rudimentary, 90-some percent of those people had achieved the goals that they set out for themselves. Uh People who don't have some kind of a roadmap, they might get some of those goals. They might luck into some, um, but a lot of times they don't. Well, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And it seems like that's true no matter what the goal is, whether it's financial yes. or relational. Right. Uh, you're just much more likely to get there if you set a goal. Sure, it makes which, sense. Um, I wish I had known this when I was about 20, 25 years old. <laughs> Uh, sure, it just makes well, sense if we know the direct. If we're going to get to Chicago, and we know the road to, I mean, the freeway to get there. Yeah, chances are we'll get there just yeah, by having yeah. the goal out there and having even a rudimentary idea of how we're going to reach that goal. It's very important. Well, here's the thing that I wonder about financial advising and and the kinds of issues that you have to deal with in terms of the couples and and the the challenges that they may face. One of the things that I noticed when I was doing divorce law years and years ago was that one of the arguments that often came up in the division of assets was the idea of sweat equity. 
mm-hmm. where you have one spouse, and it was usually the woman, increasingly now the men. But it was back then it was usually the woman who, by agreement between the two of them, was going to stay home and take care of the children and, and, and the household, and she was going to support the husband's job. And maybe he traveled, and, and maybe mm-hmm. that's what he had to do in order to make it up the corporate ladder, and the hours were sure. long. And, you know, he's sweating at work. She's sweating at home. Sweating at home. Uh, married, false. <laughs> yes. And sweating at home. You know, I've been at home and I've been at oh, work. Oh, I think it's harder home. work. <laughs> oh, and sweating at home is absolutely harder work, and I remember. And yes, my there was wife always went when, there. Um, Oh, absolutely. I remember there was a time when I wasn't even, I didn't even have children, and my husband and I had moved to a new city. And at the time, you know, he said, well, you know, you don't have to work if you don't have to, if you don't want to. And I was at home for, I think it was about a month, and I said to him, okay, this is too much work. I need a job. (laughs) And uh, so (laughs) off I went and found a job. So the challenge that would come up when the couple gets divorced now is that all of a sudden the man starts to say things like, well, you know, I'm the one who made all this money, and all you did was, and you can imagine how that fight went. So in financial planning, do you ever have to deal with the question of who's generating the money, and are there issues that arise when you have one cup one one of the 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 partners who is actually staying at home and the other partner is doing the work i no i i luckily i say that luckily cuz it's a happy statistic or at least happy experience for me i have rarely seen that um partly it's because i can pick and choose the people i work with and i mm-hmm. tend to pick people who Couples who the partners respect each other and the work that is done by each of the partners. I I have worked with some couples where you know actually the woman worked harder than the man, and the man just belittled her and put her down all the time. And my relationship with them ended after a few sessions just because I didn't I didn't want to work with someone like that. So luckily I've worked with people who have respected each other and treated each other equally in that sense. Um, you've done probate work or divorce work before. You know that that uh, when people are getting divorced, even if you have a stay-at-home spouse, they have a claim on the working spouse's retirement plan. They have a yep. claim on the real estate, all real estate in the marriage. And so it's gotten much more fair, particularly to women, because they have tended to be the stay-at-home person. Um, it's become much more fair in divorces now for women than it was, let's say, 30, 40 years ago where they could have been out in the cold. So luckily that's changed considerably. Well, Same good. issues. I mean, this, the, you know, whether the couple's divorced or married, um, they're the same kinds of issues, though, and challenges that they're looking at, uh, whether they're married or separate, when talking about retirement or quitting work. Mm-hmm. Well, we are going to see if we have any better luck with the next clip that I'm hoping to play. Okay. <laughs> and uh, this is a woman who is uh, talking to uh, her psychologist about her life. You know. You say you've been depressed. Not depressed, really. 
I'm not clinically depressed. I don't write down that I'm depressed. I have a good life. Great job. Good news. You're six weeks pregnant. Let's see how those twins are growing. Okay, I think you're ready to start pushing. I love my job, I do. Can't imagine doing anything else. The rest of my life is fine. It's fine.
Well, and speaking of change, in in fact, I noticed in the in the first chapter of your book, you set out a really nice roadmap of what a person needs to do to plan for that day when they do decide that they can quit their job. Take us through that roadmap, Colin. Well, there's there's probably three big challenges people think about when they're going to quit or retire. One is, of course, am I going to have enough money to live on uh, without running out while maintaining my standard of living? So that's the first thing they have to figure out is, where where's the money going to come from? What sources of income are they going to have to maintain an acceptable lifestyle? It may be higher or lower spending than what they're doing while they're working, but whatever, um, they've got to figure out where does that income come from so that I can be uh, still fairly happy with that level of, of living and not run out. If the average person retires at 62 or 65 years old, there's a good chance today they will live to be 90 or 85. That means they've got about 20, 30 years that the money must last. So that's a huge factor they have to think about. The second thing is something called inflation. And I know that gets mentioned a lot. The easiest way to think about it is to consider that in about 1975, a postage stamp cost, I think it was three cents or maybe four cents. Today it's 44 cents or or 46 cents maybe. I don't even know. The point is that inflation means the cost of everything keeps going up. When you retire and quit working, you've also got to have a plan to triple the amount of money you have coming in in the next 20, 30 years because that's what's going to happen to the cost of postage stamps or milk or cars or gas or whatever else. Um, And then, of course, you want to minimize taxes because you do have sometimes limited income, and so you want to minimize taxes. So that's, to me, that's kind of the roadmap. If you can get those three things answered or planned for, you're in pretty good shape. How how are these concerns best addressed? Give us some examples. So, for example, whether I'm concerned about inflation or outliving my resources or lowering my tax burden, what kinds of um, options do you end up discussing and what kind of strategies can minimize these concerns? Well, let's talk about um, not running out of money. Um Most people, of course, will qualify for Social Security. That won't run out, uh, in spite of what the newspapers and certain politicians say. Uh, (laughs) The system is on good footing. The kinds of things Congress needs to do to keep it floating are are actually fairly simple. They just have to do them. But it's, 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 it's not in a crisis situation. I think we can count on Social Security for many years. That's a constant source of income. But that's not enough to live on for most people. And so, one, they have to save enough. Uh, It's just as simple as that. It's just as simple as putting enough money away. Because what's going to happen, they get to be 65 years old, if they have a certain amount of money, and I'll I'll use a formula, a simple formula here in just a minute. Um, There have been dozens and dozens of studies conducted 
to determine if I'm going to take an income off of my assets, my 401k, let's say, how big of an income can I take and be pretty certain I won't run out of money? Well, the magic figure is about 4 or 5% a year. So that means if you, re- if you retire and you have $100,000 in your 401k or your IRA, um, and you take out 5000 a year, 5%, probably you will never run out of money. But can you live on 5000 a year? That goes back to my point that I just said, that people need to save a lot more than most people are doing. So that would be one way. Um, you, just a very simple formula like that. Keep in mind, I can only take about 4 or 5% a year, generally speaking, year to year, unless, you know, without risking running out of money. So then people can kind of work backwards. Okay, if I'm 35 now and I'm going to retire at 65, you can almost do it on a pocket calculator. What do I need to put away every month to get to a certain number at 65? Now, it gets a little more complicated when you throw in inflation, but there are very simple software programs that can help figure that out. Wow. Now, planning to quit your job is obviously harder when the market is not doing as well as we would like. Is it generally a good idea uh, for people to stay away from the market in times like now when the Dow has been so volatile and there are worries about another recession? I my own pers- personal I, I I don't think a person should ever be out of the market. Um, let me back up and exp- well explain why there was a study done years ago by a company called Dalbar in uh, Boston. This is a uh, company that uh, is not tied to the mutual fund industry, but they studied investors' returns on their money, and they found out that over a twenty thirty year period the average investor's money grew by about 3% a year. At the same time, a very neutral index, like the Standard & Poor Index, grew at about 8 or 9% a year on the average. So why is the investor doing so much more poorly than just a neutral, mindless index? And I think the answer is because people are not in the market all the time. The Standard and Poor Index is measured every day. Uh, <laughs> what people do is they follow the media, they follow the day-to-day news, they become fearful, they take their money out of the market and they plunk it in the bank or under their bed or something. Um, yeah. And they, and they lose vital days of growth and ups, upswings in the market. Yeah. Um, so what, is, what should a person do? Well, there are a number of strategies that have been developed by academics, not salespeople, by academics to try to minimize the ups and downs of the market while still growing your money. Um, Strategies like something called asset allocation, which is a fancy word that just means don't put all your eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. And and there there are... processes that people can go through, either with someone like myself or they can get help on the Internet or books that um, will help them place their money, to use those strategies, to place their money in the market that, sure, it'll go up and down. You know, that's you can't avoid that to some extent. 
but you will minimize the ups and downs. And over time, now I'm talking 20, 30 years, historically the market has gone up. So I suggest to people don't don't get out of the market, you know, unless it's an emergency or something, and your your husband's dying and you need the cash. But but otherwise, yeah. I I kind of ignore the day to day, month to month volatility. Could drive Is crazy that a hard to thing to do? And do you find that when when clients come in to talk to you, are they concerned about that, or do most of them get it that this is a long term? Marathon, it's not the sprint for today. Uh, that's probably, it's interesting questions, B.O.A. That's one of the hardest aspects of my job. I have read, uh, oh, I've read hundreds of books on financial advising, and there's there's an author that I, I love who, uh, his name is Nick Murray. He's mm-hmm. written several books for people like me, and he says, your toughest job is behavioral management not money management. And what he means by that is people naturally, the human condition is fear and greed. So when we see the market go down or we read the headlines in the paper that Europe is imploding and whatever, you know, the crisis Mm -hmm. of the day is, as humans we become fearful and our natural tendency is to take the money back, put it under our mattress. And then we wait until things look good and we put it back in. The problem with that, and it's all of us have done it sometime in our lives, the problem with that is what what is when when the bad news comes, the market goes down and we pull out, we're selling low. And then of course when the market turns around on good news and the market goes up, we put our money back in, now we're buying high. So we're selling low, buying high. That's a formula for disaster. But that is human nature. And so one of my jobs is to educate people on the strategy to use to avoid that very natural human tendency. And even so, I have to tell you, in 2008, 2009, the Great Recession, I had many, many phone calls just encouraging people Hang in there. It'll turn around. Uh, And, of course, it did turn around. Uh, But I had many calls. People were extremely fearful, and I I understand that. I I get worried as a human, too. In order to do that long-term planning, is there an optimum time to start investing for retirement or that second career? Well, ideally you'd do it when you get your first job and you have a little disposable income, you know, maybe in your 20s or something, ideally. because it, 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 You know, that's the simple answer. I'll, I'll go look at people a little older in just a second here, but the reason it's so important to get started as early as you possibly can, even putting $25 a month away, if that's all you can afford, is the power of compounding. Most of your listeners have probably seen charts that banks publish that show if you leave your money in the bank, even at uh, 1-2%, uh, after about 20 years or so, all of a sudden the value of that money just explodes. I think it's Albert Einstein who said that compound interest was the greatest invention humans have ever <laughs> But, but oh, it takes 20 
years, and it's really 30 years, if you look at those charts, the money explodes in value. It's incredible. But you need 30 years. So if you plan to retire at 65 and you really want to get that explosion of money, you should have been starting at at, uh, 35. Now, what if you don't? Well, you know, it's never too late because at some point you're going to want to quit and the more money you've been able to save, obviously, using our 4 or 5% formula, the more you're going to, the higher income you're going to be able to create. Um, so, of course, the sooner you can do it, the better, but, but even so, if you've got five years before retirement, mm-hmm. uh, don't get discouraged. If nothing else, it can operate as a, maybe an um, emergency fund for you which is also very important to have in retirement. Besides starting early and then, if if they didn't start early, starting period, <laughs> yeah. what, are there other steps that you would recommend people take to start planning for that quitting day if they haven't already done, done certain things? Well, let's go beyond money. Is that okay? Sure. <laughs> Um, certainly all the things we've talked about with money, it, determining one, what kind of lifestyle do I want and how much money is that going to take to maintain? Uh, am I prepared for inflation? Is my money going to grow fast enough to keep ahead of inflation? Beyond that, I think it's very important, and I don't, I do some of this with people, but I'm not a psychologist or a job counselor. But I do encourage people to think about, before you quit, what are you going to do? Here's a sad statistic. Um, In Minnesota, there is a a public employee retirement association, PARA. It is the public pension for state and local employees. The statistics um, 20 years ago showed that most retirees died within five years of leaving their government employment. I'm sorry, how many? I was just shocked. Five years. Now, maybe that's a little longer now, but what it says to me is that people have not thought through what are they going to do when they quit working. And so they tend to become more sedentary. Uh, Maybe they start abusing alcohol or drugs. Uh, They don't get any exercise, and their health starts to deteriorate. Their mental health probably deteriorates because they're depressed. So I don't want to talk about the depressing stuff, but I do think it's important then that before, beyond the financial issues, once those are settled, um, that people think about what am I going to do. It's kind of like uh, I'm 22 years old again, I just finished college, and you know what, I can do anything I want in the world. Um, Think dream. For maybe the first time in your life you had an opportunity to do something that you've always dreamt about doing, and now finally you've got the time and the financial freedom to do it. So I encourage people before they retire, before they quit working, to think through very carefully, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do with my time? Who am I going to be with? Where am I going to spend the time? Uh, Because I've seen too many people retire and become very depressed and have health problems because they didn't answer that question. Wow. Well, that is a really good point because it it that certainly would not have occurred to me as something that you really have to pay attention to because you focus so much on 
the saving of the money. Sure. That um, you know, it, it it's never once occurred to me that uh, maybe you ought to actually focus on what am I going to do with the life that I have. Now. Sure, and that and that ties in with the money too. Because do I have enough? If I want to be a missionary, <laughs> do I have somebody to sponsor me? Uh, if I don't, have I got enough money to pay for the travel? If if I, or if I yeah. want to work on world famine, um, whatever you're going to do, the financial aspect ties into that because do I have the money to support myself when I'm doing these projects or doing this kind of work? So it all ties together. And, of course, if you don't have enough money to quit and live on, retire and live on, uh, then it isn't even an issue. You just have to keep working, which is okay for some people. a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Well, this... This brings us to the top of our hour. Time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? Yeah. Colin, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you, Speedway. It's always wonderful. You bring up such interesting and vital topics for your listeners. I I appreciate your show. Well, listeners, we've had a host of comments on the website, so stop us and uh, stop by and tell us what you thought of this particular show, and if it. Uh, caused you to jumpstart your financial planning, certainly. Uh, we'd love to hear about it, so visit com and let us know. If you would like to get updates on upcoming shows, check on, uh, just click on the RSS feed at the top right-hand corner of the home page, and uh, you will see the topics come out to you on a weekly basis. Everyday people, everyday lives. You don't have to be a celebrity to be a guest on the show because all of us have everyday joys and challenges in our relationships. If you would like to be our guest, you can send me an email at info at com. And if you happen to forget that, just visit the website and uh, click on the Contact Us button and submit your request. Join us next week when we will be talking to author and dynamic public speaker, Sheila Ford. That topic is going to be in our spiritual uh, series, and we're going to be asking her, why should we bother going to church? Why should we go to temple? Why should we go to the mosque or any other place of worship in today's busy world? Until next week, this is Theoe saying go in peace and find a way to love somebody every single day. Thank you for joining us on the Speedway Show. Until next time, live well, live fully, and love deeply.